Thank you, Bells. So this is a curious Sunday, friends. Uh, we've already remembered two parts of the gospel story that are so very different uh, in their tone and atmosphere. Um, one highlighting how excited the crowds were to have Jesus arrive in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They were, they were cheering crowds. And the other passage from Mark 15 that Karin read for us, highlighting how disappointed and judgmental the crowds of people were, how eager they were for Jesus to be crucified. A jeering crowd. Jesus came into Jerusalem with fanfare and sky-high excitement. I mean, incredible excitement. Do you remember the parade downtown in October of 2016 after the Cubs had just won the World Series? I think it was like that in Jerusalem, except maybe even bigger. Just the happy feeling, the sense that something great was happening, the feeling that even better things were yet to come. Unlike the Chicago Cubs, however, who rode the miracle mile on luxury buses equipped with balconies and climate control and chilled drinks, Jesus came into town on a donkey. That was not a nice ride, even 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine if the Cubs came into Chicago on rickety old yellow school buses? You know, where the windows going to, don't go down, you're like, is that really them in there? Or just able to stick a hand out? I mean, maybe that's the equivalent. I mean, the crowd 2,000 years ago knew the prophecies in Zechariah and Isaiah, prophecies about a king coming in on a donkey, prophecies about a suffering servant, a humble Messiah, and they would have thought, yeah, it might only be a donkey this year, but we know he's the one, and we know that he knows that he's the one. It might be a donkey today, but a year from now, he's going to be riding into town on a chariot pulled by white chargers and massive stallions. He's going to be greater than Caesar. He's going to be greater than Pilate. We're going to be better than the Romans. We're going to be about as high as we can be. This is why seven days later, when they realized it wasn't going to be that way, that they could be so fickle and changeable. How quickly human events can turn, right? Haven't we seen this in our own society? How many powerful men have there been who, because of past misdeeds or abuses and improprieties that have now come to light through the justice of the Me Too movement, that they've been literally swept from power and position in a single day? How quickly we can change our minds. Facebook itself. I mean, this global behemoth. The core of our internet-connected world is now the target of a movement that is calling for folks to hashtag delete Facebook amidst data breaches, amidst uh, the acknowledgement that perhaps Facebook has been a tool of fake news and hackers on every side. I mean, a couple years ago, I couldn't have imagined that Facebook might be nosediving this quickly. In five years, I can imagine a world where it doesn't exist. How quickly we can turn 
It even happens in the church world. Congregational reputations, pastoral reputations, hang by a tenuous thread. When I was church planting, one of the things we would regularly say to one another, not in a morbid spirit, was this. If the wrong three things happen this month, we're done. Just in the realistic acknowledgement that it's only by God's grace that we continue by a church, as a church, that our reputation stays intact. This was no surprise to Jesus, how quickly and changeable we can be as human beings. Jesus' very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, in his hometown of Nazareth, he opened the scroll of Isaiah, he read about good news being preached to the poor, the day of justice, he read from the scroll, and the Bible says this, everybody spoke well of him and was amazed at his teaching. And then Jesus shared the sermon. And basically his sermon was, you know, we've been chosen of God, but God's kingdom is really big. It's not just us. God's kingdom is going to include outsiders and Gentiles and people you wouldn't guess. And he concluded his sermon by saying, you know, God can do miracles, right? Lots of people had leprosy back in the old days. God chose to heal one person of leprosy in the days of Elijah the prophet, and it was actually a Syrian man by the name of Naaman. This was Jesus' sermon. How did it go over? At the end, the congregation escorted the preacher out to a cliff and tried to throw him off a cliff. I mean, that happened in one day at a worship service. He's speaking so well. Why don't we go throw him off the cliff? And that was Jesus' first sermon. He understood very well how quickly public opinion can turn. Now, after three years of building up goodwill and credibility in Israel, after three years of preaching and teaching and listening and praying, taking time for the children, healing folks, walking on water, laying on hands, telling stories, just generally being the Messiah for everybody, after three years of that, Jesus knew how the hearts of the people would turn, how quickly we would turn against him. Holy Week is the final step in Jesus emptying himself out for the salvation of the world. Jesus, being the divine son of God, had given up virtually everything else. Now he's laying down his reputation and soon his very life, blood, and breath. There is an awesome passage from Philippians chapter 2 that describes Jesus' intentions in being the Messiah. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, and he says to the ancient church in Philippi, in your relationships with one another, friends, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul's saying the posture of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, not just, you know, we're not going to think exactly Jesus' thoughts. That's not his point. Have the same attitude as Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying some very profound things about the incarnation here. There's a few words in green on this slide and a few asterisks. The asterisks are because if you read this in a New International Version Bible, uh, there's a couple alternate translations, and the asterisks are where I've tried to give the most literal translation possible of what uh, the scripture says in Greek. Jesus emptied himself. Meaning what exactly? In the last 200 years in Christian theology, uh, there's no deep theological thought that has garnered more attention from theologians, modern theologians, than these words. Jesus emptied himself. What does that mean exactly? What divine attributes did Jesus put aside? Did Jesus put aside his omniscience? Did Jesus put aside immortality? Did Jesus put aside omnipresence? What exactly did he empty himself of? You'll notice in this passage, Paul answers none of those questions. Like, the word of God itself is not interested in just doing theology for theology's sake. So we're not going to do that today either, okay? The best single statement I would offer to you comes from C.S. Lewis, which says, when Jesus emptied himself, it's the kind of emptying uh, that a painter exercises when they empty their imagination and thoughts and heart and feeling on a canvas, when they express themselves. That's the kind of emptying that God does in creation itself, yes, and the kind of emptying that Jesus does in becoming a human being. Now, in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is much more interested not in doing theology but in showing us, as believers walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, the posture we should take so that we can live with each other, so that we can get along with each other, so that when the world sees the body of Christ, they can actually see Jesus himself. This is because sometimes, lots of times, all the time among Christians, we get this wrong. So perhaps you heard news of this this week, have no interest in gossiping about this, but there's some difficult things going on with our friends at Willow Creek Community Church these days. I don't know what's what there. I lost some sleep because of this. I have looked up to and respected uh, some significant leaders there through the last few decades, and now no matter what has happened there, there are significant brothers and sisters in Christ who are just at deep odds with one another. That's what's brutal to me when we as the church, when our, when our leaders or when things that matter most to us, when we get it wrong so that we're fighting each other and accusing each other, when we're second-guessing one another's motives rather than keeping our attention where it ought to be and finding ways to get along. What's happening there is not the first time something has caused division in the church. It's not the last time. When Paul wrote these words, there was already some cracks in the foundation of the Philippian church. I think it was probably his favorite, healthiest church. 
But even the church in Philippi had some problems like right off the bat. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul uses the same word about setting your mind, your mindset, your attitude on the Lord. Paul says this, I plead with you, Euodia, this is a woman's name, a leader of the church, I plead with you, Syntyche, Maybe they really didn't like each other because I don't know that anybody has named their girls one of these two names in the intervening 2,000 years, <laughs> right? Just like nobody names their kid Pilate. I plead with you, Euodia. I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind, the same posture, the same attitude in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Okay, this wasn't just a small little side argument in the church. Paul is saying, these ladies have contended at my side in planting this church in the cause of the gospel. We don't know what their disagreement was. But isn't it interesting that when Paul offers these profound words about the incarnation, that he's doing so in saying, in your relationships with one another, you need to have the mind, the attitude of Christ. And now here at the end of the letter, the end game of his letter is to try to create peace in that church by encouraging people to have the same mind and attitude in Christ. I mean, if you read the book of Philippians with that in mind, that's why it exists in the Bible. Not to help us do theology about the incarnation, but to help us love one another with the attitude of Christ. So here's the problem with human beings. 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, today, here's how we roll. We are who we are, and then we just think, maybe if I just took a little step up, I'd feel a little better about myself. But as soon as you take a step up, you're looking down on people. Right? It's like there's lots of kinds of music in the world, right? But the kind of music I like is probably a couple steps better than the kind of music you like. So, I feel kind of sorry for you. Or we live in a great neighborhood. And we're doing well compared to our siblings and other family members. And then we think, you know, I've been doing well for the last couple decades. So even though I don't need it, I could just have something that's bigger. Or faster. And then before you know it, you're two steps above, and how are you looking at the rest of your family? Do you feel the temptation of this in your life? It will look a little different for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. The temptation to take a step up is always there for us. And it's always diabolical because it causes division between you and the people that you're called to love. I mean, I'm just a little old pastor, right? But last June, I became a lead pastor. You know what I'm saying? And then Illinois put me on jury duty. But I'm still a lead pastor. But we need to hire a few people. But our church has a great building. <laughs> all the time. This ladder is in our life all the time. And when we allowed ourselves to be suckered up a step or two, we are creating the seeds 
of division and havoc. There's only one person that deserves to be on top of the ladder. The opposite of emptying yourself is stepping up. The opposite of emptying yourself is puffing yourself up, standing on a platform, finding the highest place. But here's what matters, friends. Jesus Christ is lifted high. And you are not. God is on the throne, and I am not. Jesus is the one who deserves the highest place. Now, in some churches, especially uh, in the old world in Europe, the pulpit is like 20 feet in the air. I mean, it's high and lifted up. That's because the word of God should be high and lifted up, not because the speaker or the preacher should be high and lifted up, right? The honor goes to the word of God, not the person who opens their mouth. Uh, Quite frankly, sometimes I wish that, like, we have a stage. It fits America. This is important. Uh, In my head, I see it this way. I am about eight steps below floor level, and I'm speaking up to you, okay? I understand. I'm the guy on the, the stage, But that is not actually reality, okay? Reality is, I'm a staff member here. I'm a servant here. I'm a pastor here. I am like, I am three steps below you all. Jesus did not save us from the top down. He saved us from the bottom, from the depths up. That's how it works in the spiritual world. And this is the the posture, the mindset, the attitude that we are asked to consider by God's word and to imitate by God's word. Is there a way for you in your life to resist the temptation to step up and instead to take a step down? and serve the people that you are called to love. Now, this whole idea did not just start in Holy Week. It started at Christmas, okay? It started at Christmas more than 2,000 years ago, more than 33 years before Palm Sunday, when Jesus descended from heaven to earth. He took the ultimate step down. One of the earliest Christian sermons puts it this way, Christ was born in order that he might suffer in order that he might die, in order that he might descend to the dead, in order that he might free those who are dead. Do you hear the ratcheting down of every step in Jesus' ministry? Down, 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 in order that he might lift sinners like us up. And we, friends, we are called to be Christians, to be little Christs, to walk in Jesus' footsteps. And how are we going to do that if we keep stepping up, if we keep wanting to puff ourselves up? We will fail before we even start. You are at your most Christ-like. Not when you succeed, 
but when you serve. Our church is at our most Christ-like, not when people drive by and say, wow, that must be an awesome place. But when people are served by our body, we are at our most Christ-like, not when we step up the ladder, but when we kick over the ladder and throw it in the corner. Our greatest life, your best, most joyful life follows this pattern descending through love to what's best. It's so hard for us to get this, that the way up first leads down. We just want to go up, right? Just straight up to the penthouse. But in Christianity, you must go down before you go up. God's path to glory goes through the cross and all its horrors to be truly successful in your career, at your school, even in the short term of this life, you need to descend. This is the mindset that the Bible is talking about. The removal of everything that isn't God-directed. The removal of everything that isn't essential, the things that distract us from God. And once those distractions are out of the way, we can truly empty out what is from God onto the canvas of our lives so that others can see it and think, wow, that turns my attention to God. Do you know what God does with a life like that? A humble life, an obedient life, a sacrificial life. Do you know what God does with a life like that? He lifts it up. He lifts it up higher than it ever could have gotten on its human, mortal strength. I'm going to finish this passage from Philippians 2 just as a taste of what God will do for us through what he did for Jesus. There's a lot of yellow words if you would uh, read these strongly. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, Jesus that is, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king. He always was king. Like the people on Palm Sunday got it right. Hosanna to the king. But in emptying himself as a servant, he became the king of kings. Do you get the difference? As the son of God, he was always the king. But because of emptying himself unto death, he became the king of kings. Jesus descended into greatness. And that is the pattern for us too. In the events of this Holy Week, the question at hand is, how far will love actually go to demonstrate this? How far can love go to show us that the way to glory first must go down. 
Friends, in this Holy Week, uh, there will be two opportunities to experience something sacramental, the sacrament of communion. When we gather in uh, the garden room for Monday, Thursday worship services, those services will end with a recollection of Jesus offering his body and blood to his disciples. And it's as serious, it's as weighty, it's as somber as it can get. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet, and he, he serves Judas, his betrayer. He serves the rest of them who are going to run away, and he is still emptying himself out of love. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be contemplative. It's going to be really serious. When we gather a week from this morning on Easter Sunday, we are also going to celebrate communion. It is not going to be quiet. It is not going to be contemplative. It is still going to be quite serious, but in a celebratory way that not only do we commune and share the life of the one who went to the cross, but we commune and we share in the life who God raised from the dead because he emptied himself so selflessly that death could not keep him in the ground. And it's not just the table of death but it's the table of life. That experience might be uh, a little more foreign to us. Eating and drinking and communing with the resurrected Lord. But I'm hopeful that a week from today, that is going to help us give glory to God, share in the life of Jesus Christ, and truly celebrate that he not only went to the cross, but that God gave him and us eternal life. How far will love actually go? I'm going to share with you some final words from Mark chapter 15 as a preview of what's ahead in the first five days of Holy Week. Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, because they misunderstood, listen, he's calling to Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it up on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink and then said, now let's leave him alone and let's see if Elijah really comes to take him down. Even in this final hour, the persistent temptation through Jesus' life and ministry to not go the way of pain and avoid the cross, it's even there uh, in his last hour. People are wanting to see it. Maybe he'll still get out of this. And then with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the temple... The curtain of the temple 
was torn in two from the top down to the bottom. By the way, the top of the curtain was so high that no human hands could reach it. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said this, Surely this man was the Son of God. Even though he was rejected on that Good Friday, who was he? The Son of God, surely. Even though he had been rejected by his friends, denied by one of his closest disciples, who was he? The Son of God. Surely, even though he had been beaten and scourged by the Romans, who was he recognized to be? The Son of God, surely. Even though he had been tasked to carry a hundred pound crossbeam over his shoulder and surely failed to bear that weight all the way to Golgotha Hill. Who was he? He was the Son of God, surely. Even though he was lifted up on the tree, even though he had an ironic sign put over his head, the King of the Jews, who was he? The Son of God, surely, even though he breathed his last, exhausted, suffocating. Who was he, this man? He was the Son of God, surely, even though he quite literally died. Who was he? the Son of God, surely. Friends, the invitation is to walk and to remember and to behold the life and death of the Son of God or the life, the death, and the life of the Son of God. At the end of this message, I simply would invite you if it is your intention, if it is your desire to walk with Jesus every step of the way, to remember this week, to worship this week, that you confirm that desire in your heart. I'm going to leave you a moment of silence. When you hear the music in just a moment, I'll invite you to stand and we'll sing a final song together.